Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, tell us about global military spending in 2023. Yeah, no doubt listeners will be uh, super pleased to learn that humanity uh, collectively spent 2.2 trillion dollars uh, on their military on our various militaries last year, which is a nine percent increase over 2022 and a new annual record. So congratulations to all of us. I think we all had a hand in, in bringing this about. Uh, we should be very proud of ourselves. Uh, the United States uh, did way more than its fair share. It accounted for a bit over 40% uh, of that 2.2 trillion all on its own. The rest of NATO accounted for a bit over 17%. Uh, of the total, which puts the alliance, if you adjust for uh, rounding, puts the alliance at about 58% collectively of the planet's total military expenditure. Just for uh, clarification, I guess, or context, NATO members collectively account for about 12.5% of the population of the Earth. So we're batting well above uh, our weight here, I think, in terms of uh, of military spending. Uh, the uh side side kind of tangential piece of this uh as, as has to do with NATO is that uh the alliance now estimates that 18 of the gang's 31 member states will hit the recommended level of 2% of GDP uh in military spending this year uh obviously the war in Ukraine uh the Russian invasion has fueled a lot of that uh, but even Germany, which uh, has been, you know, coasting, and frankly, I'm not sure we want uh, Germany to be increasing military spending, but uh, who am I to judge? Uh, even Germany is going to get, uh, likely to get over the 2% mark this year. Danny, as you may know, and as people have undoubtedly uh, heard, Donald Trump, friend of the show, U.S. presidential candidate, once and perhaps future U.S. president, uh, suggested over the weekend that if he is reelected uh, to a second term, in November, he will not uh, honor the NATO collective defense uh, provision for members that are not spending up to the 2% of GDP line, that he would just tell them to buzz off and invite the Russian military, for example, that was the example he used, to do whatever they want to these, these countries that aren't uh, paying what he regards as uh, essentially dues to the organization. Uh, that's likely to spur even higher levels of military spending, I would think, uh, given the likelihood of a second Trump presidency. Uh, so we can probably expect this number to go up uh, in 2024, even beyond. We'll set a new record, new frontiers. Uh, it's all a great, uh, great time to be alive. I just hope until the day that I die at 140, every year we outspend the last year in terms of global. I mean, I think we have <laughs> to. Otherwise, we're letting the somebody win. I don't know the bad guys, whoever they are. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna win if we don't do they that. They certainly already are. All right, let's move on now, Derek, to um, Gaza. And if people haven't listened, please check out our special on Rafa. It's um, I think quite interesting and it's free for all. So check that out. But Derek, why don't you give us a quick update on what's going on in Rafa? 
Yeah, I don't want to uh, cover the ground that we covered with uh, Muhammad al-Safin yesterday, yesterday evening. Uh, but there is a what appears to be a mass evacuation of Rafah, un uncontrolled mass evacuation of Rafah underway uh, at this point uh, after days and days of uh, at times quite heavy Israeli bombardment and under the assumption, uh, well, it's not an assumption, the Israelis have said that there is ground assault on Rafa is uh, imminent, so uh, people have started to flee. We've been hearing that they want to come to Rafah, just like every city in Gaza, and we're so scared we don't know where to go. As I say, there's there's no order to this. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu on Friday uh, told reporters that he had given the uh, Israeli military two orders, one to prepare a ground invasion of, of Rafah, uh, and the other to prepare some sort of evacuation of civilians. You can guess which one has been uh, actually uh, honored and which one hasn't. Uh, there is no plan in place for evacuation, but people appear to be fleeing mostly to the north, uh, according to uh, the reports that I've seen, Al Jazeera for one. Uh, they're moving back into central Gaza uh, to Deir al-Balah and uh, the uh, refugee camps around that area. So, uh, you know, there's nothing there. It's all been destroyed and there's no humanitarian access to these places. There's no humanitarian access at this point to any anything north of Rafa, uh, which is where these people are fleeing from. Uh, so, you know, this is uh, pick your poison, I guess. Uh, do you want to stay and be killed in the ground assault or do you want to move uh, someplace else and potentially starve to death? Uh, those are the choices that uh, that people have at, at the moment. And again, really please check out the special. It's quite um, important, I think. And I don't always say that. Uh, what about ceasefire talks? Yeah, ceasefire talks aren't looking great, uh, unsurprisingly. Uh, this is the one thing that that could forestall, at least for, for, some, for the time being, uh, the attack on Rafa and maybe uh, give uh, humanitarian organizations a chance to get into Gaza uh, you know, into deeper into Gaza than they're able to do right now and, and set up some actual displaced persons camps with facilities that could handle these, uh, these people and, and provide for some of their basic needs to you know, some level of them. Uh, the talks are, are not going well. We, we talked last week of Hamas had, uh, you know, delivered its response to the uh, proposal that was on the table and the Israelis rejected that, uh, there are still negotiations reportedly going on. There, there have been negotiations in Cairo. Uh, the Biden administration once again sent CIA Director Bill Burns to Cairo to participate in these things earlier this week. Uh, but reports out of Israeli media say that said that uh, have said that Net Netanyahu has uh, essentially quit those talks. Uh, he, he recalled his representatives. Um, you know, listened to what was on the table and said, uh, you know, that that's it, we're done. Uh, if, if he has, I, I've seen conflicting reports, whether he just quit them altogether or uh, told uh, some of his people to go back to Cairo, but not to participate, to just sort of sit there and be present. But either way, it seems like he is uh, not keen to, to seriously re-engage uh, in these negotiations. Now, this could all be a tactic, uh, the bluster, you know, the, the promise of a uh, an imminent invasion of uh, imminent assault on Rafah uh, could be bluster. Uh, the negotiating tactics here, pulling people out, and uh, you know, it could all be a, a try an, an effort to try to pressure 
Hamas into making more concessions. The big sticking points at this at this point uh, appear to be over uh, prisoner exchange. Uh, Hamas wants to dictate which prisoners would be released, and they're asking for a number of uh, people that the Israelis would consider violent, uh, prominent offenders. Uh, people like Marwan Barghouti, who is a prominent Palestinian who's, who's been in custody since the the Second Intifada. Um, so, you know, they're, they, they don't want to do that. Um, the Hamas is a- asking for some kind of guarantee, uh, that the, the ceasefire, which is now back to six weeks after, uh, going, uh, you know, as high as four and a half months, it's now back to six weeks, maybe renewable. Uh, but they're asking for some sort of guarantee that the ceasefire will be honored. They're, uh, they've moved off according to the Washington post from their demand that the temporary ceasefire be linked explicitly to a permanent ceasefire that would come at the end of uh, an, an extended process, uh, which was uh, just a non-starter for the Israelis. So they, they have moved a bit, uh, and, and it's possible that, uh, as I say, Netanyahu is is doing all this to kind of uh, puff his chest out and, and get more concessions out of Hamas. But I, I don't think that's the case. And anyway, uh, they, there's no indication that, that Netanyahu is prepared to end this conflict, and Rafa is the the only place left to go. So I think uh, it is inevitably going to be uh, attacked one way or the other. What about evacuation ideas? Yeah. So as I said, the the evacuation to the extent that people are leaving Rafa now, they're doing it in an undirected way. There's been talk of of uh, you know sort of uh, options, maybe maybe asking people to to move west to the coast. Uh, where they could set up uh, and receive aid uh, by sea instead of overland through checkpoints, uh, or you know there there is space uh, in that area where people could be could be put. The problem is there's no facility, there's no access, even easy access for uh, relief organizations to get to the the uh, southern Gaza coastline uh, except by sea. So you know establishing. Uh, the kind of facilities that would be needed to handle hundreds of thousands of people. That's the uh, the order of magnitude that we're talking about. It, it's just not something that could be done uh, in in the short term. So it's it's not necessarily, it doesn't seem like a, a terribly realistic uh, idea. The, the, the lurking prospect behind all of this has been for weeks uh, that the Israelis will drive the Palestinians out of Gaza altogether into Sinai uh, to the Egyptian side of the, the border. Um, and you know, the Egyptian government has resisted this, the international community has resisted anything that would look like ethnic cleansing, but the possibility still exists that the, either the Israelis will intentionally try to do this or that, uh, the situation in Rafah will just become so, uh, so uh, untenable, uh, that Palestinians will pour over the border, whether, you know, anybody wants them to or not, uh, to try to escape the fighting. There are, have been reports, uh, in a number of, uh, outlets that that I think were confirmed uh, were essentially confirmed, I should say, by uh, the Washington Post on Thursday that the Egyptian government is constructing some kind of holding area. Uh, I don't know exactly what the, that entails, uh, but something in, in the, the kind of northern Sinai, uh, close to the uh, the Gaza border. Um, this has been taken, interpreted by in, in some quarters as the the Egyptians preparing to kind of. Uh, go back on their resistance uh, to relocating the cousins and, uh, and to, to uh, you know, acquiesce in their ethnic cleansing. But I think more likely, uh, and this is the explanation that the Washington Post got from its sources in Egypt, 
they're just preparing for the worst case scenario. I mean, this is, you know, they want to be ready in case uh, there is a flood of people over the border. Uh, so I don't think there's been any policy change except in so far as they're, they're sort of seeing the writing on the wall. It's becoming an actuality. Um, let's move on to Lebanon, where there was a major exchange of fire um, today and yesterday on Wednesday and Thursday. Yes. Uh, on Wednesday, uh, there was a rocket attack from Lebanon. Now, Hezbollah uh, hasn't claimed responsibility for it, and it's entirely possible this was a Palestinian militant group or somebody else. But the rocket attack uh, hit apparently an Israeli military base uh, and killed uh, a soldier. This prompted a major barrage uh, of Israeli strikes, ret uh, retaliatory strikes. Uh, that at last count, uh, I believe, killed 13 people, 10 civilians and three Hezbollah, uh, you know, operatives or personnel, including one uh, who was apparently quite senior uh, in the organization, at least in its uh, southern Lebanon uh, operations. So uh, that in turn on Thursday prompted a barrage of rocket fire from Hezbollah in retaliation. And, uh, you know, uh, we've we've talked about these back and forths over and over again since October 7th. But once again, I think uh, there is a, a fear that things could be headed toward uh, a more expansive conflict. Um, there, there's, you know, there, there's a lot for the Israelis potentially to be gained. I mean, there's a lot to be lost, obviously, from a war uh, with Hezbollah that would in, could involve Iran and could become a regional conflict and cause all sorts of horrible things to happen. But uh, if you're you know, about to massacre uh, 1.5 million people in, in Rafah, uh, this would definitely be a distraction from that. Uh, this would definitely uh, take people's attention away from the fact that you promised uh, an evacuation that doesn't seem to be happening and an organized and orderly evacuation. Uh, that doesn't seem to be happening. It would pull the U.S., which, you know, we've gotten uh, another, you know, two dozen stories this week about how Joe Biden is really getting mad with Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, everybody, he's really tired of this guy. He's not going to change policy in any way, but he's really tired of him. It would probably, you know, bury that story as inconsequential as it is. Uh, so, you know, there, there's there's plenty to recommend ex uh, escalating things uh, along the the Lebanese border from the Israeli side, and that I think is the is the fear that that uh, where we could be headed. Let's move to Pakistan, where there was recently an election. Yes, so Thursday, Pakistani voters went to the polls. Uh, I believe we talked about this in uh, last week's uh, news update uh, to select a new parliament. Uh, as we said, there there was uh, a, an avalanche of of efforts on the part of the uh, the Pakistani establishment, the military and political establishment, to bury former Prime Minister Imran Khan and his Pakistan Tehreek and Saf or PTI party. Uh, Khan they've buried uh, literally in prison. Uh, well, not literally buried, but he's literally in prison for uh, many years uh, based on uh, the sentences that he's already received. Uh, PTI was banned uh, officially from the ballot, although it ran a number of candidates they had to run as independents. Well, uh, to, to great surprise, I think, given all these efforts to, to uh, crush PTI's electoral chances, the party actually won the election. Uh, its independents, uh, I think 93 of them were elected, uh, and that tops uh, any of the uh, organized parties that participated in the election. But because they ran as independents, uh, there are many, many hurdles that would uh, they would have to uh, overcome 
to form a government. So in the meantime, the actual party that quote unquote finished first, since it was uh, ran, its candidates ran as part of an organized party, the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, uh, led by former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, has claimed victory. They've announced that they're uh, entering a coalition with the uh, second place. Again, put that in quotes. Really, they finished third. Uh, Pakistan People's Party. We don't. I, it's it's unclear to me uh, how many joint seats they're going to have at this point. Uh, but they have put forward uh, Nawaz Sharif's younger brother, Shehbaz Sharif, who served as prime minister uh, most recently prior to the sort of uh, ramp up to the election when a technocratic cabinet took over. Uh, they put him forward as their prime minister candidate. Um, the PTI, meanwhile, has tried to uh, basically glom on uh, to a small religious party, the Majlis Wahdat al-Muslimin party, which could you know, effectively give them the, the prerogatives of a party if they're able to get away with this with the electoral authorities. It remains to be seen whether that will happen. Uh, so there's a lot that's, that's up in the air here. They both declared victory. PTI is, you know, as I say, trying to overcome uh, the hurdles that have been thrown in its path. With the election over, PTI-backed candidates are now flooding the courts with vote-rigging allegations, something the Pakistani state continues to deny. There have been uh, reports of uh, just outright vote rigging, uh, you know, going beyond the efforts that were made before the election to bury PTI. We've had at least one candidate uh, who uh, has uh, basically won, uh, won his election. He's from the Jamaat-e Islami party uh, in, uh, and was running for a seat uh, in Karachi. Uh, and won his election and has now stepped down because he says he discovered uh, that the PTI-backed candidate, who again was running technically as an independent, uh, had votes just taken from him. And, and uh, so, the, you know, the counting was just literally rigged. And there may be other instances of that, probably, I would say, uh, other instances of that across the country. But all of this, you know, would I mean, the PTI isn't just dealing with legal hurdles. They're they're facing the entire Pakistani military and political establishment, which is quite powerful still. Uh, so their chances of of actually succeeding in in getting these, uh, uh, you know, in in getting it back into power are are pretty slim. Uh, I think this will probably have to. This will probably be up in the air until uh, the new session of of parliament begins. At which point. Uh, they'll simply ask uh, the uh, the candidates or the, the parliamentarians to vote or the members of parliament to vote on uh, a candidate for prime minister. And we'll see if the uh, if Shepard Sharif wins or if the PTI back candidate wins. Uh, but, you know, the odds are, are not in uh, PTI's favor. And we hope to have a special on this soon as well. It's a very interesting situation. Uh, Derek, let's move on to Myanmar, where there have been reports of military disarray. Yeah, the Washington Post, again, we've cited them a lot here, but they, they did a, a sort of insider report on uh, Wednesday this week based on uh, interviews that they say they've done with uh, Myanmar soldiers who have either surrendered to rebel forces or defected uh, to get out of the army over the past few months. Uh, there are a number of accounts of, of the from these people who have already that have already been compiled. The post that it did, uh, you know, a few more interviews with uh, folks like this, and the reports are 
you know, that the, the military, the Myanmar military is is collapsing internally. They've obviously we've covered this uh, on on this podcast. They've suffered a number of defeats, steady territorial losses uh, to a number of rebel groups around the country since late October when the new uh, there was a new rebel offensive that began on, on October 27th. Um, but supposedly the, the, you know, the, the problems go deeper than just territorial losses that the, these defectors or, uh, people who surrendered are talking about logistical breakdowns, army units going without food, having to, you know, kind of take off their uniforms and go into these towns and villages where they're not particularly welcome, uh, and, you know, kind of barter for food because they're not, uh, getting any supplies from the government uh we've w- there have been reports of entire units uh, the rebels claim whole battalions uh, in on some occasions just surrendering to the rebels defections do appear to be on the rise in the face of all of this the junta uh, the Myanmar junta uh, announced a new conscription law this is basically activating a conscription law that was already on the books uh that will require all uh, men between the ages, I think, of 18 and 35, all women between the ages of 18 and 27, to do at least a couple of years of military service, if not more. They can extend that at, uh, in times of national emergency. The president would certainly seem to, to qualify. Uh, they've also activated another law that was on the books allowing for the recall of veterans or reservists uh, to active duty for up to five years as well. Uh, there's a lot of talk of people, you know, trying to dodge the draw online chatter about dodging the draft, fleeing the country, maybe uh, altogether to avoid service. But the junta seems to think that it's going to get uh, at least 5,000 new recruits per month out of this. Uh, I, I have my doubts. Uh, and even if it does, it, it, these logistical problems, I mean, that's not going to be solved by just bringing in a bunch of raw recruits. So uh, I would say from the uh, Hunter's perspective, things are apparently not looking terribly good. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founder's level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to The Nation. Thank you for listening. And now, back to the show. Let's talk about Indonesia, where there was also an election. Yes. Uh, Wednesday, just, uh, well, yesterday, we're recording this on Thursday. So yesterday, uh, the Indonesian uh, voters went to the polls. They have apparently elected Prabowo Subianto, retired general, uh, currently defense minister, uh, as president. Uh, I don't think the counting is done yet. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, but at last check, uh, he was well on track to meet all the conditions for a first round victory to avoid a runoff, which is uh, over 50% of the total vote, and then at least 20% uh, of the vote in half of Indonesia's uh, provinces, which, uh, you know, uh, he seems to be well on well on the way to doing all of those things. Prabowo is a, uh, well, I guess, interesting guy, you could say. There was a piece at The Intercept a few days ago about, uh, you know, about his background. He, he's a son-in-law of uh, Suharto, uh, infamous 
the infamous uh, Indonesian dictator. He's been involved in, you know, ma- reported massacres uh, of political opponents of, you know, people in East Timor just uh, as a very uh, horrific past, all very close to the uh, U.S. military and CIA, uh, unsurprisingly, I suppose, uh, and, and some of the atrocities that uh, the U.S. contributed to in that country. So, you know, doesn't sound like a terribly nice guy. He has built himself uh, an alliance with the incumbent president, uh, uh, Joko Widodo, who uh, he tried to overthrow a couple of times in coups and ran against him a couple of times. And uh, Jokowi, as he's known, uh, really uh, at, at some point after, uh, you know, beating back a couple of the coups and facing Prabo in a couple of elections, uh, despite having been known uh, during his time in office as uh, Indonesia's Obama, he's young, kind of, you know, left-coded, talking about rights and democracy and freedom and all these wonderful things, basically decided it was easier uh, to go along with the military establishment uh, than to try to fight them. And so he and Prabo have formed a a working relationship. Prabo is now running uh, his running mate is Jokowi's son, and so you know they have a uh, a family, a, a even alliance at this point, and that seems to have been the thing that put uh, Prabowo over the top in this election. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk now about the protests going on in Senegal. Yes, uh, the uh, rescheduling of uh, Senegal's presidential election, uh, which was supposed to take place on February twenty fifth, uh, President Macky Sall. Uh, rescheduled it for mid-December, uh, probably because he was worried that his candidate was going to lose. Uh, finally, uh, after days of tension last week following that uh, the announcement of that postponement, things really started to flare up. On Friday, there was a planned protest in Dakar. Uh, the police intervened uh, to break it up. Amnesty International on Tuesday accused uh, Senegalese security forces of killing at least three people uh, in various protests across the country uh, over the weekend and last week, mostly Friday and Saturday, I think is when the uh, the heaviest violence took place. Uh, there was another protest that was supposed to take place in Dakar on Tuesday evening. It was canceled or postponed uh, when authorities uh, in the city banned it. The organizers say they're gonna gonna try to redraw the route of the march and, and resubmit it for approval. But the you know the government has cut off communications, cut off internet service. So there's a lot of pent up, uh, uh, well, a lot of concern that things could turn e- even more violent uh, moving forward. Now, just on Thursday, and this story just kind of broke a little bit before we recorded, uh, the Senegalese Constitutional Court. Uh, ruled that Saul did not have the authority to cancel February 25th, the February 25th election. And so it has, I guess, reinstated the election. I don't know. This, as I say, this just happened. Uh, so I don't, uh, I haven't really digested the implications, but it seems to throw a new wrench into the works. Saul may be forced now, legally at least, if he doesn't, uh, uh, you know, he's already, already tried to circumvent the law once. So who, who's to say he won't try to do it again? Uh, but the February 25th date may be back on uh, at this point. So uh, I don't know. We'll have to, to see what the fallout from that is. Thank you, Derek. Um, what's been going on in Ethiopia? So the Ethiopian Human Rights Council, which is a quasi-public body, it's it's formed by the government, but it's independent of, of, of the government. So it's able to uh, investigate claims of uh, abuse by government security forces. The Human Rights Council 
last week claimed that uh, it had evidence of a massacre of more than 80 civilians uh, in the town of Marawi, uh, which is located in Ethiopia's Amhara region, uh, that took place on January 29th. At the time, uh, when it announced this last week, it didn't say anything about who did it or what the, the, the details were. Uh, but that was enough to get the U.S. ambassador to Ethiopia, Irvin Masinga, uh, to call on Friday for an investigation uh, into the council's report, which got a bit of media attention. Uh, the council then on Tuesday uh, announced that it had confirmed the death of at least 45 civilians. Uh, the the full total is is probably higher, but these are the names that they've been able, or the people that they've uh, actually been able to confirm were killed, and uh, they said that they were in fact killed by federal Ethiopian security forces in this uh, incident, this massacre. There were uh, Amhara has been been racked for months now by conflict between Ethiopian federal forces and the Fano militia, which was allied with the, the federal forces uh, during the war in the Tigray region against the Tigray People's Liberation Front. But since then, the relationship has broken down. The Fano are resisting basically the, the federalization of regional militias like that one, which uh, you know the Ethiopian government has been trying to facilitate. So they resisted that. There's been you know on-again, off-again conflict in Amhara for some time now. Uh, and presumably... Uh, or at least according to the commission, these people were executed by uh, Ethiopian security forces for on suspicion that they had been aiding uh, the Fano militia. So, uh, you know, just a heinous accusation, one that the Ethiopian government is uh, denying. But, uh, you know, I don't think they've offered uh, much in their defense other than uh, this didn't happen. We reject the the report. There's some claim that they were attacked uh, in Marawi and were acting in self-defense. Uh, that's not what the council seems to be claiming. I mean, it sounds like uh, in their accounting, the, the government forces just went door to door and you know pulled people out of their homes and, and executed them. Uh, but they're talking about some sort of uh, firefight, I guess. Derek, let's turn to some good news. And it turns out there are now nuclear weapons in space. <laughs> Yeah, we're all we've all been rooting for this. Now they're they're not in space yet, but they might be. So this was uh, on Wednesday. The chair of the House Intelligence Committee, and you know, put that uh, put intelligence in quotes if you want. Uh, Mike Turner, who's a Republican from Ohio, made this tweet very vaguely talking about some uh, horrific security threat that the Biden administration needed to declassify, you know, immediately so that. The American people could be told uh, uh, about this terrible thing that was looming on the horizon. I was, you know, rooting for meteor, but apparently it was not a meteor. Uh, it, subsequent leaks uh, made it clear that the issue is uh, some possibility that the Russian military wants to put nuclear weapons in space. Now, the Biden administration has sort of confirmed those leaks uh, in the sense that it, it says there's an anti-satellite weapon that the Russians may be, may be considering uh, putting in orbit. I don't think they've confirmed the nuclear part, uh, but that seems likely to be the case. Uh, it is not apparently a threat to, to any targets uh, on the ground or anybody on the ground, but it could be a, a serious threat 
to telecommunications satellites uh, in particular, which would be uh, obviously devastating uh, if it were ever used. The White House is reviewing its options. We believe that we can and will and are protecting the national security of the United States. They're not in orbit now. There's no indication that this is an imminent thing, that the Russians are uh, on the verge of doing this, but apparently it's under some consideration. Uh, and uh, I don't know what we're supposed to do about it. The, uh, the 1967 Outer Space Treaty uh, bans nuclear weapons uh, from space. Uh, if the Russians did decide to abrogate that treaty, I'm sure the United States would be right out the door uh, behind them. Uh, at this point, and you know, threats to satellites, threats to satellite networks uh, are something that have been increasingly part of the uh, the military chatter for for several years now it's the reason why we uh, have a glorious space force now because we needed to focus on this uh, supposed threat to satellites uh, there are some plans that are being kicked around to to deal with this threat one of them uh, according to the New York Times which has published this uh, on Thursday in the wake of all this uh, you know chatter about this terrible Russian weapon one of the ideas is to uh, switch from from reliance on big, expensive, complex satellites to putting up satellite networks, something like the Starlink uh, system uh, that our friend Elon Musk owns and, and operates. Uh, that would have a lot of smaller, cheaper satellites that could be put up very e- put in orbit very easily, uh, and would be redundant. So if some of them were were taken offline, others could pick up the slack. Uh, that's one idea uh, under consideration, but uh, you know this is just going to make it be a flurry of uh, panicked talk. It's it's the EMP thing for the uh, for the 2020s, I think. What about Venezuela? Uh, it apparently has mass troops on Guyana's borders. Yes, uh, reports emerged late last week uh, that there were you know satellite images that the the U.S. government had seen that some news outlets had. Uh, apparently seen that showed Venezuela massing military assets near the the Guyanese border. Now, people should be aware, we've talked about this also on the show, that uh, Venezuela has a territorial claim on uh, the western, uh, I think two-thirds or or thereabouts of Guyana. It's called the Essequibo region. Uh, Venezuela has had a claim on this area that goes all the way back to colonial times, uh, but the discovery of uh, potentially large oil and gas and other mineral resources in that region has sort of escalated that claim to a uh, something of a priority. Uh, the Venezuelan government held a referendum uh, in December in, in which voters, a few of them anyway, turnout was probably pretty low, uh, but voters uh, supported the idea of annexing uh, the Essequibo region. So that and that was followed by meetings. Uh, Nicolas Maduro uh, and Irfan Ali, the president of Guyana, met to, and and promised not to try not to settle this dispute by force. And you know they have a had a gentleman's agreement on this. But according to the Venezuelan government, which finally came out uh, over the weekend and spoke up about this military buildup, admitted that it was doing it. Uh, the Guyanese government it says is, has been issuing what it called illegal oil concessions. Uh, in the region, uh, illegal because, of course, you know Venezuela claims that that this region is part of Venezuelan territory, and it should be the uh, they should be the ones issuing uh, any oil concessions. Uh, so, you know, that's that's what they're they're saying or how they're justifying uh, the military buildup. There is no indication uh, 
uh, that the Venezuelans are planning to invade Guyana. Uh, I don't think that's in the cards, although, you know, who, who knows at this point. But more likely, this is a negotiating tactic. The whole thing may be a negotiating tactic. It, it, uh, it does a couple of things for Maduro. It, it gives people a galvanizing foreign thing to focus on so they don't uh, focus so much on domestic politics uh and it could be a way for maduro to try and claim some share of the oil rights or of the mineral rights in essequibo so he's not uh i don't know that he has any expectation of uh getting all of them or you know getting all of that revenue but maybe he gets 10% 10% of it or 25% of it or whatever target number he has in mind just to kind of go away and uh, let things proceed. That that seems more likely to be uh, where this is heading or where Maduro would like it to head at least. Derek, let's conclude with the United States and give us an update on the military supplements that's been happening. Yes, uh, another thing that we've been covering uh, for a while now, the Biden administration's military supplemental, which uh, in which they asked for around $110 billion for uh, military aid to Ukraine, to Israel, to Taiwan, a few billion in humanitarian assistance and, and other assorted odds and ends, plus a, a big chunk of money for border security or border draconian security, whatever, uh, you know, something uh, basically militarizing the Mexican border. As people have have presumably been following, if anybody's been following this, you know that uh, the bill died in the Senate uh, amid a back and forth over the border piece. Uh, Democrats essentially conceded everything Republicans wanted, but Donald Trump said, I don't want this. I want to be able to run on uh, border security, so don't agree to this. And Republicans fell in line uh, and uh, opposed the deal. So what happened instead uh, is a a bipartisan, apparently, group of senators decided to uh, strip the border provision out of the bill. And so it's now down to about $95 billion total and uh, resubmit it or, you know, kind kind of resubmit it with just the military aid and the humanitarian piece. The Senate on Tuesday passed after an all night session Tuesday morning passed that bill. Uh, It's now in the House of Representatives where Mike Johnson, the speaker, has pledged to kill it. But there are some legislative uh, ways around that. And Democrats are are reportedly, you know, trying to to see what options they have uh, to get around Johnson's opposition and get the the bill to the floor where I suspect it, it. it might pass. I mean, the, the Republican majority in the House is not large, and, and there's probably a sub- significant chunk uh, of Republicans in the House who would like to see more aid for Ukraine and Israel uh, and Taiwan. And so, you know, that could be enough to, to, to get the bill passed if it, if it comes to a vote. But that's the big if. Uh, of course, about most of the bill, about $60 billion, is earmarked. For Ukraine, the United States is, uh, is more or less handcuffed at this point in terms of providing any additional military aid to Ukraine uh, until this uh, this measure passes, at least at a at a substantial level. Well, Derek, thank you so much, and thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.